The apostle writes, Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it is not to the sinful nature to live according to it. For if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. And here begins our text. Because those who are led by the Spirit of God are the sons of God. For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Sisters and brothers in our Lord Jesus Christ, when I was seven years old, my family adopted my two older sisters. Isabel and Belkis were the youngest daughters of a young woman who served as the janitor of one of the Dominican churches where my parents worked when, we were, when they were missionaries in the Dominican Republic. And when their mother was diagnosed with an aggressive terminal disease, she asked my parents to care for her daughters. I remember it like it was yesterday. We were sitting around the family dinner table, which was always central to our life together as a family. And after supper, after we had done our devotions together as a family, my father said that we were going to have a family meeting which didn't happen very often. Dad explained to us that the mother of Isabel and Belkis had gotten very sick, and she had asked us to take in her two youngest daughters as a family, which would mean that me and my younger brother and sister would have two older sisters, making us a family of five. I remember listening very carefully to everything that my dad was saying that night. I listened carefully to the questions that my brother William and sister Charis asked. I listened carefully to the answers that my parents gave. When they would be moving in, where would they be sleeping? What would they do about school? What kinds of things would we have to change about our life together as a family? What things would change? What things would remain the same? The adoption of Isabel and Belkis meant that a lot of things changed for our family. We got a bigger dining room table so that we could fit seven comfortably at mealtimes. We started private Spanish tutoring and even did family devotions in Spanish for a while because Isabel and Belkis were just beginning to learn English. And the guest room was converted into a bedroom 
for Isabel and Belkis to stay there. But as I reflect on the major changes that their adoption meant for our family, I'm struck by how much more of a change it was for my two new sisters. They moved from their childhood home in a small rural town of farmers and factory workers to the suburbs of one of the biggest cities in the Dominican Republic. They moved from a one-room home with an outhouse to a four-bedroom house with three bathrooms. They had to learn all of our unwritten rules and family customs that we just took for granted. They learned English and jumped into private tutoring to get caught up enough to attend an English-speaking school with the rest of us by the next September. Because my parents adopted them, they also became American citizens. And in a few years, they would move to Houston with us. Our text for today, from Paul's letter to the Romans, compares the process of receiving the Holy Spirit to adoption as children of God, to being brought into God's family, made heirs of His estate. And the apostle here chooses an emphasis that I didn't expect. He writes, You did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear. A slave to fear. Why this emphasis on fear? Turns out that adoption is kind of a tricky system. Both in the ancient world and the modern world, it's a, it's a system that can be easily abused. There have been studies and articles written about the abuses in the international adoption system that basically turned children into commodities to be bought and sold in some countries, of governments incentivizing vulnerable women to give up their children to meet the world's demand for international adoptions. And that's part of why it's so difficult to adopt internationally nowadays, because systems have been put in, in place to uh, protect children from these kinds of abuses. Adoption brings risk. What if this arrangement of children and parents just doesn't work out? What if these relationships just never develop or, or turn sour? What if the parents use these children for their own personal gain or treat them no better than slaves in a family system like that in ancient Rome where all the members of the house were legally considered the property of the man of the house? You can see where this kind of fear would come from. And I wonder, as the apostles waited between Christ's ascension and the pouring out of the Spirit, as the apostles waited for those ten days, I wonder what they were afraid of. Here's this group of Jesus followers whose entire life for the past three years has been defined by following this man, this teacher. And now he has left them. 
he has told them to wait for the gift his father promised. The disciples are gathered together in Jerusalem just waiting. Maybe they're afraid that the political leaders who arrested and crucified Jesus will come after them next. Maybe they're afraid that whatever they're waiting for is going to take a really long time. Maybe they're afraid that God isn't going to do anything and they'll be stuck, not knowing what to do next. Sometimes I wonder if the disciples worried that God was not going to give them the gift that he had promised because of their guilt about abandoning Jesus in his time of need. After Jesus' resurrection, we read some stories about him reconciling with some of his disciples, with Peter, especially, who denied Jesus three times, with Thomas, who received the news of the resurrected Lord with skepticism, But I wonder, for those ten days of waiting after Jesus ascended into heaven, whether this fear gnawed at the hearts of the disciples while they gathered together for prayer. Like, I know that God is faithful. I know that Jesus promised that the Spirit would come. I know that we're not waiting in vain because nothing Jesus ever told us to do was in vain. But I am afraid that I am not worthy. I abandoned Jesus when he needed me most. When I should have stood with him and stood up for him, I fled in fear. While he suffered, I hid. When it came right down to it, I was not able to show the basest type of loyalty. I am not worthy to receive this gift. Would God really give me his Holy Spirit? I imagine that kind of self-doubt would inspire a great deal of fear. This text also speaks powerfully to our own fears about God today. I think that many of us harbor in our hearts the same kind of fear as the disciples. We fear that we are unworthy, that our efforts are not enough for God to save us, We fear that God demands more than we will be able to give. We fear that when bad things happen to us, that when we suffer, that God is punishing us. Many of us have this picture, I think, our primary picture of God as this great, all-powerful ruler in the sky who pours out blessings on those he loves and curses on those he hates. And that makes it difficult for us when we go through hard times. Why is God doing this to me? But the Apostle Paul in this passage totally reframes our picture of who God is and what his relationship is with us. God is not some capricious deity in the sky deciding who to bless and who to curse. That's more of a pagan picture of God than anything. Paul reminds us, if you want to know who God is, look to Jesus. His life, his suffering, his death. Look to the one who walked these paths on the earth. 
Look to the one who suffered as we suffer in a physical body. Look to the one who points us to God. If you want to know God, get to know his son, Paul says. Get to know his son who paid the ultimate price and now is glorified, ruling over all things at the right hand of the Father. The one who rules all things is the very one who gave his life for you. Paul gives us a new picture of God as a family. The son serves the father not because he has no choice, but because he loves the father. And the father glorifies the son and gives him all authority in heaven and on earth, not because he must, but because he loves his son. And that is the relationship that the Holy Spirit invites us into. The abundant love that exists between the Father and the Son to such an extent that we too are called children of God. Adopted as members of his family, heirs of God, and co-heirs with Christ himself. When the disciples receive the Holy Spirit, they are filled with the love of God. The Spirit assures them of their adoption as children of God. The Spirit empowers and equips them to do the work that Christ has commissioned them to do, which is to tell the world about God's great love. And the disciples go out from Jerusalem to tell the world the good news of the gospel, that God so loved the world that he sent his only son. And this spirit is the same spirit that is poured into our hearts in our baptism and throughout our lives. This same spirit adopts us as children of God, inviting us to participate in the relationship of love between the Father and his son. This same spirit inspires our hearts to cry out, Abba, Daddy, Father. This same spirit assures our fearful hearts that we are heirs of God, that as his very own children, we have a place at the dinner table of our God. What does it look like for us today to live out of this self-giving, poured-out love? I think it looks a lot like a missionary family bringing in two Dominican girls. I think it means making space in our lives, our homes, our daily routines for others. Doing devotions in Spanish for a while, turning our guest rooms into bedrooms, setting a table for seven instead of five, inviting others into our family dinners where we participate in a mutual outpouring of love and are nourished 
and sustained by so much more than food and drink. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, and all God's people said, Oh, Lord, our God, we thank you for the gift of your spirit. We thank you that by this spirit, we may cry out to you as our father. Knowing that you will hear us as your dearly beloved children and heirs. We thank you that you have given us a place at your table. That you have made your table bigger so that we can all sit around it as your family. And we pray that we will be nourished and sustained by this love that you pour out so freely, that we may love others with the love that you have for us. Bless us, O Lord, we pray. Amen.